You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot joins the Post to discuss the city's reopening plans, vaccine rollout, and Lightfoot's strategy for driving economic recovery. Let's listen. Good morning. I'm Eugene Scott, political reporter for The Fix at The Washington Post, and I'm delighted to welcome my first guest this morning, Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot. Welcome to Washington Post Live. Uh, It's my pleasure to be here with you. Thank you so much for joining me. And first, I want to start talking about public schools in Chicago, because, as you know, they've been in the headlines so much. Uh, Now, we know that schools in Chicago have mostly stayed closed uh, due to coronavirus until very recently. And CPS made an agreement with the teachers union to reopen schools in phases. Why is reopening right now versus in the fall the right decision? And why is this an urgent agenda item for you specifically? Well, for me, it's a simple matter of equity. We know that remote learning works for some. Um, but there are too many black and brown kids, low-income kids in our system for whom remote learning uh, is simply not working. We have the first quarter grades in. We're seeing uh, significant increases in the number of uh, African-American and Latinx students who are failing math and and reading. Um, And we know from what we've heard from parents, uh, from our own um, observations, that remote learning presents significant challenges. Now, to be clear, we've invested Um, hundreds of millions of dollars to make remote learning work. Uh, We passed out hundreds of thousands of devices, hotspots. Uh, We started a program over the summer called Chicago Connected, which is a $50 million program uh, to provide free uh, Wi-Fi and broadband access uh, to low-income families. But despite all these efforts, uh, there's no question whatsoever that remote learning is not a replacement for in-person learning particularly when you think about our youngest learners, the preschool kids, um, our kids with special needs, the social emotional learning and supports that those students in particular get from an in-person experience that simply cannot be replicated through a computer screen. So it's critically important, not only to CPS, um, but the future of our city, our reopening, but our children that we provide an option for in-person learning. And that's exactly what we've done. So can you talk a bit about what a phased phased reopening will actually look like and why you decided to do it this way? Well, we uh, spent a lot of time talking with our teachers union um, about what made the most sense, um, how to address the concerns of their membership um, around uh, the virus um, and the fears of people are real. Uh, We've been living through um, literally hell on earth over the last 11 months. Um, exacerbated by the incompetence of the former federal administration, whether it's in uh, COVID-19 response or more recently, we're seeing um, the bad legacy left by them um, regarding uh, vaccines and not enough to meet the demand. But the reality is that people are afraid. They're afraid for their own personal health, for the personal health of people that they may be caretakers for or someone in their household. So making sure that we address those issues and then phase the return of those teachers to uh, in-person learning um, was a reasonable thing to do. And that's what we agreed to as part of our uh, agreement with the teachers union. Speaking of being afraid, we know that part of the agreement with the union is to provide teachers uh, with vaccinations. Are you requiring the teachers to be vaccinated before they enter the classroom? 
We are not requiring it, and I don't really think in this phase when we're under emergency use authorization that we can require it. But what we are doing is offering it to a range of teachers, and that started a couple weeks back. We have had tremendous partnership uh, with Walgreens, um, who stood up uh, pop-up vaccination opportunities uh, for teachers. That continues. And then uh, the Chicago Public Schools itself is setting up uh, four uh, CPS-specific uh, vaccination sites that will add to uh, the number of CPS personnel, from teachers to uh, uh, cafeteria workers and so forth, that can get access to the vaccine if they haven't already. And we know the data shows that transmission in schools is relatively low, but people are still pretty concerned. Um, so as you resume in-person classes, what safety precautions are you putting in place around distancing, mask wearing, and, and ventilation? Well, all of those things and more. Um, over the course of the summer and the fall, CPS spent over $100 million uh, to make improvements and mitigation efforts um, in our classrooms. And let me highlight a few of them. If you walk into a CPS school, the first thing that you're going to see is someone at a table who will take your um, temperature and then ask you a set of screening set, uh, questions. You're also going to see um, a mask that are available, uh, hand sanitizer, and a number of other protective measures before you even can enter into the mainstream of the school. Um, we had a set of independent um, inspectors go through literally every single classroom and every school and make specific ventilation uh, recommendations. And any uh, classroom that couldn't be uh, rectified, that classroom is out of commission for this entire school year. In the classrooms themselves, um, you'll see, particularly if you're in elementary school, little um, boxes and squares on the floor that um, uh, simulate the social distancing that we want the students to adhere to. Um, teachers themselves have uh, an array of protective gear from uh, regular masks uh, to other kinds of PPE, depending upon uh, the kind of uh, teacher that they are and their direct access uh, to students. So we've also got in many of our classroom uh, partitions um, on the group desk to separate the students in a protective way. So we've gone, um, I think, above and beyond. We've learned from the experience of other school systems um, here in Chicago that have been open for some form of in-person learning uh, since September. And of course, we've looked at the literature and uh, the experience of other school systems across the U.S. and across the world. Bottom line here, though, is our schools are safe. Before we had this latest um, a conflict with the Chicago Teachers Union, we had three weeks of proven success with that our mitigation efforts uh, that we put into place over the course of the summer and the fall actually worked. And students have now been back for another week and all things are, are moving in a positive direction. And we're doing this, of course, in the context of the city of Chicago's uh, numbers, whether it's cases, whether it's percent positivity, whether it's hospital numbers, um, are um, at, at the best that they've been um, throughout the, the time of this pandemic. So we feel very, very confident that our school mitigation plans will be successful. And we've got uh, controls in place in the event that there's issues at a particular school or in a particular classroom um, that we have triggers for uh, quarantining or necessary, shutting them down. So overall, I think this is a very robust plan. Uh, and I'm happy that our students have an option to come back to in-person learning.
Now, we know that uh, negotiations between uh, the public schools and the teachers union were, were really difficult and, and dominated headlines uh, over the past few months. Do you still support uh, an elected school board versus an appointed one by the mayor uh, like you campaigned on? Well, what I will say is this, I learned a lot through uh, this recent experience with the Chicago Teachers Union, and particularly hearing from parents who believe that their voices were locked out. And I've said this from day one, whatever the form of governance is that we move to, parents have to have a seat at the table of governance. And the proposals that I've seen so far fail um, spectacularly in that basic gating measure. I can't agree to any kind of change in governance where parents are not front and center, where the uh, views and concerns of their um, children and students um, aren't taken into consideration. And obviously, um, the fact that uh, I was personally involved uh, made a big difference um, in getting this matter uh, resolved. So there's a lot of nuances to how we move to, to governance. Uh, and I'm, um, wel I welcome uh, the, a more public discussion about this. But first and foremost, as I said, parents have to be part of this um, process, but we also have to make sure that whatever the form of governance is, that we don't lose sight of our key mission, which is providing a safe and nurturing learning environment for our students. <clears throat> what we've learned over the course of this pandemic is that the challenges um, of uh, systemic racism and other inequities have become even more glaringly apparent. So when we think about the school system, education truly can be the great equalizer, but we've got to be very intentional about what we do, how we do it, and who we're investing in. And I want to make sure that Black and Latinx students do not fall behind um, now or in the future. So that's got to also be a critical part of the tech, uh, calculus when we think about uh, a new form of governance uh, for the Board of Education. I want to come uh, back to the falling behind point you made about Black and Latino students, uh, because that's an important point. But before we get there, can you share what you learned, uh, or specifically what's the most significant thing you learned from going head to head with the teachers union? Well, I don't think of it as me going head to head with the teachers union. What I think is um, I was advocating and fighting on behalf of our students and our parents who wanted the option to be able to come back to in-person learning simply because remote learning is not working for a vast array of our student population. So my biggest takeaway is that uh, it's important for me to be active and involved and advocating on behalf of parents and those students to make sure that their voices are heard when we're talking about anything related to public school education. So much of the conversation um, both here in Chicago and nationally about reopening is, uh, uh, is exclusively about teachers. And obviously teachers are a critical part of the school ecosystem. But the whole reason that we are all here when we talk about education is for our students. Our children have to be front and center, period. You mentioned earlier uh, concerns about Black and Latino students perhaps uh, not maybe uh, performing as well as they could uh, in a more traditional academic environment. And so what do you think needs to be done specifically to address issues of learning loss students, you know, very likely experienced? Well, we have a, a working group 
<clears throat> that we stood up some weeks ago to address that specific issue. But fundamentally, I think the first step is offering, <clears throat> pardon me, offering the in-person um, learning experience. Then we've got to be talking about what exactly is going on um, that has exacerbated um, the, the achievement gaps that we knew existed, but have been uh, become, I think, more prominent um, going forward. And really what it's about is providing our children <clears throat> whether they're remote or in-person, with a well-rounded array of options and experiences that help fuel their learning. Education isn't just about what happens during a day in the classroom. We know this from our own research and for studies. We've got to provide um, our young people options in their out-of-school uh, time as well. And a lot of those opportunities have been significantly pared back or shut down entirely because of COVID. COVID has exacerbated the um, education and achievement gap of, of many students, particularly in our black and brown students. So thinking about how we make up those losses, um, what additional supports we can provide at the community level and having those conversations with community level uh, members themselves is gonna be a part and part of our process going forward. This can't be something that's conceived in the central office or in the mayor's office and then imposed from on high. We've gotta do this at the grassroots level because there's not one size fits all options. We have an incredibly diverse uh, group of neighborhoods um, and resident needs, and we've got to meet those needs because if we meet those needs, then we're going to be meeting the needs of the students and being able to provide them with the supports so that they can also recover. You know, we talk a lot about recovery in the context of COVID-19. What I'm urging my um, staff and our administration to do is really talk about recovery in the context of what that means for young people and for children in our city. We need to make sure that recovery includes them as well. Speaking of COVID-19, we know that uh, last week you tweeted that Chicago has distributed, I believe 99% of the vaccines you were given. Are you receiving additionally weekly allotments from the feds or, and? And I guess how much, and, and are you getting enough? Well, look, I, I think given the horrendous circumstances that the Biden administration walked into, which essentially was that the vaccine covenant was bare because of the incompetence of the Trump administration, they have worked diligently throughout the transition and three, four weeks now that they've been in office uh, to address those shortfalls. We have seen a small increase in the amount of a vaccine that we're getting on a weekly basis. And one of the big important things that they've done is told us um, in three weeks in advance <clears throat> what our supply would be so that we can then plan around that. You can't build a properly functioning distribution system when you don't know from week to week what your supply is gonna be, which is where we were <clears throat> prior to the Biden administration taking over. So that's significant progress in and of itself. But the bottom line, and it's not a secret, <clears throat> no one has enough vaccine, not in Chicago, not in LA, not in Denver, not in Dallas, nowhere has enough vaccine. And so increasing that supply on a weekly basis is critically important. How would you say uh, the Biden administration could be doing things differently or better than uh, what they currently are doing in terms of getting vaccines to these cities? Well, look, I think the biggest thing is, is finding a way to really increase the supply. Um, they are 10,000 times more communicative than what we got before. Um, they are listening to 
uh, city leaders all across the country. So I give them high marks for uh, their approach, which matters. The process is important, but fundamentally, we've just got to produce more vaccine. We know that you know there are long-standing racial disparities in healthcare, and, and they've been exacerbated during this pandemic. Uh, we know with cases, with deaths, and now with vaccines. And a USA Today uh, analysis uh, in Chicago found that in majority Black and Latino neighborhoods, just 5% of residents have been vaccinated. Uh, in majority white neighborhoods, the rates were much higher, in some places six times higher. How are you addressing this issue? Well, I don't know when that uh, analysis was done, uh, but we'll be announcing some things later this week that show there's a, been a pretty remarkable uh, turnaround in that. Look, the reality is in Black and Latinx neighborhoods, vaccine hesitancy was real. We knew that even before we got the first doses, which is why we did a number of things um, to uh, try to address it. Number one, back in April, when we saw the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on our Black communities with Black deaths being seven times the, any other demographic in our city, <clears throat> we stood up something called the Racial Equity Rapid Response Team. And really what that um, team has done throughout the pandemic is gone and taken a very hyper-local approach, uh, identifying trusted community leaders at the grassroots level and brought them into a conversation about what we needed to do to reach people, to educate people, and to get them uh, tested and healthcare. We've used that infrastructure that we built um, in Black and Latinx communities to really also get the message out about vaccines. In addition to that, we stood up a very diverse group of scientific experts who looked at the process by which these vaccines came to market and then certified uh, to the public that the vaccines were safe. We've also invested a tremendous amount of marketing and outreach to Black and Latinx communities. And then more recently, we've instituted something called Protect Chicago Plus, which is going into 15 of our most hard hit black and brown neighborhoods and focusing on bringing vaccine to the residents of those neighborhoods, regardless of their circumstances, so we can get more black and Latinx um, residents vaccinated. And those efforts in combination are really starting uh, to bear fruit. We know Chicago has had to close uh, quite a few vaccination sites because of the winter storm uh, that's taken over parts of the country right now. Uh, how are you considering disruptions like this as you continue with your city's rollout? Well, actually, we didn't close any vaccination sites as a result of the winter weather. All of our vaccination sites are inside because it's Chicago and it gets cold. So we made sure that we build a system where the vaccination sites were inside. You may be referring to some of our outdoor testing sites that absolutely have been affected by the winter uh, weather. We closed uh, vaccinations yesterday simply because we didn't get the weekly supply, but we're back open uh, today. So I feel very, very good about where we are with our vaccination infrastructure. As we get more vaccine, we will continue to expand those opportunities. But the combination of our pop-up sites, the work that we're doing uh, with uh, um, providers and pharmacies, and then the Protect Chicago Plus uh, plan that I talked about, going into 15 neighborhoods that have been hardest hit by COVID, I think we've built a very equitable and robust vaccination uh, distribution um, system here in the city of Chicago. 
So I want to take this moment to go to at least one audience question. We've got one from Connie Harris. Uh, she's in Michigan. And she wants to know, how are eligible citizens, particularly seniors, without transportation supposed to get vaccinated? <clears throat> yeah, that's a great question. And what we've done, um, Connie, is we've partnered with a number of uh, community-based organizations so that we made sure that we were meeting the needs of seniors. Um, one of the things that we've also done um, is gone to the healthcare providers who have those seniors as patients and said, you need to prioritize them. So when they come in for their regularly scheduled uh, uh, visits, make sure that they're getting vaccines. We partnered with groups like uh, the AARP, which is very active here in the state of Illinois and Chicago in particular, to make sure that we are breaking down those barriers so, for, so that seniors, particularly those with underlying healthcare conditions, get access to the vaccine as quickly as possible. And that is part of our overall structure. Partnering with people um, who, who speak to these communities, have access uh, and legitimacy in these communities, and then building on those partnerships to make sure that we bring people to the vaccines or bring it to them if necessary. I wanna to pivot to Washington for a bit, and we'd love to hear your thoughts on the COVID relief bill and, and what you would like to see Congress pass. Well, look, I think that the um, outline that President Biden um, set forth um, early on um, is the right outline. It addresses a number of challenges. Uh, um, as you well know, COVID-19 uh, didn't discriminate on the basis of political party. It hit every sector uh, of America very, very difficult, very hard, uh, whether it's a blue state, whether it's a, a red state or independent. Um, so we need a bipartisan solution um, to this. And I think that the president's plan um, does just that. Uh, not surprisingly, as a mayor, I'm advocating for uh, direct uh, stimulus to um, towns and municipalities. Um, the city of Chicago was fortunate back in the spring when we got CARES Act funding, but that funding uh, was limited and specifically targeted uh, by program. What it didn't account for was a catastrophic meltdown in our economy that all of us are facing. So part of the stimulus uh, plan that the House is now under consideration gives direct funding uh, to cities like Chicago, but also other municipalities across the country uh, that are also hurting so that we can do revenue uh, loss replacement and get our cities uh, back on their feet without having uh, massive layoffs uh, or significant cuts in services. I believe the government should and can act as a stimulus, but we can't do that with the kind of revenue losses that we've seen. So I think the president uh, understands that, and I'm hopeful that the House will continue forward uh, with the structure that they have in place so far, and that that bill will get to the Senate and then eventually to the president's desk. If that happens, it will go a long way in healing um, our economy and setting us up for success as we recover uh, from this pandemic. Well, we want to thank you, uh, Mayor, for uh, joining us. I have far more questions about the economy, about Chicago, about the pandemic, and audience questions as well. But we know the time is short, so uh, we're going to leave things right there. Thanks for coming. Well, thank you, and, and invite me back. I, I appreciate the conversation, and thanks for the great work that you're doing uh, talking about cities and governors um, and leadership during this challenging time. Awesome. You have a great day. You too. Thank you. Well, that was an informative uh, and, and deeply fascinating discussion, and uh, we want to thank you all for joining us. But there's more of those here. Uh, make sure to come back and join us today at 1.30 p.m. Eastern Time. 
uh, my colleague Jonathan Capehart will interview acclaimed director Lee Daniels and Andra Day, a phenomenal actress, uh, who starred the new film The United States versus Billie Holiday. That's a conversation you want, won't want to miss. I will be there. Hope you will, too. I'm Eugene Scott. Thank you for watching. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.